Under its, quotes, educational system, the Bureau of Indian Affairs purposely assigned Indian children to boarding schools too far from home to maintain meaningful family communication and forbade them to use their native languages and customs. Christians have looked upon the Indians as heathens and have used forced adoptions as a means to get Indian children into Christian homes. Mormons consider Indians a chosen people of Israel and take it upon themselves to arrange for their, quotes, salvation. For most Indians, salvation means tragedy. It'll be not just New York City, I've seen it, where it's unsafe to walk the streets. It won't be just New York City, where you have to borrow your homes, like I've seen it up there. We found good people living up there in the middle of New York, with six and seven locks on the door, a guard in the hallway at the apartment. And when they step outside, especially the women, they had sometimes one, sometimes two guard dogs with them. Now that's conditions. Certainly didn't come from any of our teachers. And we're not responsible for it, but it still don't make us happy. It came from the greed. It came from the selfishness and the wrong teachers that were brought here and that we suffered under for many, many years. Now that condition is being ended, and very fast. This is Rolling Thunder, Part 5, Fight for Life, the fifth of an eight-part program on the Shoshone medicine man, healer, and activist. you can't do this, you can't do that, until many of our people got to believe in it themselves. Until finally some of us start going right out into the desert, like we're doing up there where we come from, uh, what we call a meditante. This camp we have out there in the sagebrush up in Nevada. And uh, nine different colonies and reservations located uh, within 100 miles around us, but we uh, come to realize, many of us, that you can't do anything on the reservation or under any other kind of a dictatorship, whatever the brand, whatever the name, that it's impossible because of stupid laws and restrictions and things that uh, no one should have to be allowed to live under. So in the Meditante, we located off the reservation, and we're doing very well. We've only been going two years. That's true, we need a lot of help uh, it, in all that, and uh, we need uh, most anything. We build it right up from the desert itself, and uh, we got chickens and uh, milk cow now, we got dogs, we got uh, a few things going there, we're going to start, we're already raising most of our meat, and we figure if we get a well done, we'll be uh, growing most of our vegetables by this next year, and most of our stock feed. We're not sitting still. We've had a tractor donated to us. 
big diesel tractor. We got nothing to pull behind it yet. Uh, right now, though, we're mostly concerned for our people, but uh, we're going into the winter. The winter's up there in that high altitude. It's 5,000 feet on the level. They're very cold. We need more blankets. We need warm clothing. And uh, we need, uh, uh, like I say, just most anything we can make a use of at this time. We need a, a pump for the well. Uh, we need, uh, we got a windmill a while back too, but I don't think it's uh, going to flood water fast enough uh, for the irrigation. So anything at this time that's useful, tools, uh, any kind that uh, we can build with and work with and so that we won't be idle at any time. Uh, people got a lot of energy and that we can put, uh, we certainly can put it to good use. So uh, that's the way we live. And when we build our houses, out of their wiki-ups, they're made out of willows covered over with rugs and uh, canvas. And uh, we can use any of that kind of material. And we're gonna try to get some parachutes uh, to put it over the wiki-up to make it waterproof and windproof. And they're fixed up real nice on the inside. Rugs on the floor, or the walls, and the fire pit in the center. And they're warm in the winter and cool in the summer. But the best part, no FHA and uh, no back loan afterwards. So that uh, I don't want now everybody in Los Angeles to come rushing up there. Because we still can provide for just so many. They should write first and uh, see if we can find a, a place, especially in the wintertime. But they should write first before coming there and give us time to get an answer. And we try to communicate with everyone that writes to us. And it's uh, called the Meditante, and it's uh, located near Carlin, Nevada, and Box 707. That's the way we get our mail. And uh, also, I'd like to tell about the few basic rules is that we don't allow no alcohol, no drugs, and no violence of any kind. And people come there expected to respect our religion. We don't care what they've done in the past or what they do in the future. But if they come there, they come to learn. Otherwise, it's better that they don't come. And uh, we expect their, we, we uh, enjoy their good intentions and their good energy as well as what they might learn from us. So it has to work both ways. We have, that means like learning to live together again in tribal way. That many people have to learn that all over again and work together and uh, live together, do things in that way it multiplies our efforts so we're able to move ahead faster actually with uh, what we're doing. So uh, it's a matter of survival and more and more people are going to be doing that and uh, learning how. I've seen uh, 
I think it's uh, Newsweek magazine, some magazine I've seen it in recently, where uh, people were uh, getting together in order to clean up their neighborhoods and sweep the streets in a cooperative kind of effort. I think it was New York City, where uh, they told me recently up there they were broke and they couldn't hire policemen no more and they couldn't hire people to pick up the trash. And so these people were doing it themselves. Now that's the, that's the same thing happening in the cities as their economy goes to pieces and breaks down. Uh, more, it could be more and more of it. And it's the same thing happening out in the desert in our camp, except we're not so far away from it that we already know how to live and work together. And uh, afternoons in our camps, we sing and drum, sometimes have other types of music. That's the way we entertain ourselves, because in our camp, we don't have any television. We don't have other things to do. But we find that uh, it's just the same. We enjoy ourselves, and that's, the way, that's our lifestyle. Uh, we have tonight with us a uh, young Indian here that's uh, from a uh, local tribe that these people inhabited all this area at one time and from this uh, part of the country. According to the uh, anthropologist and uh, the books that we have all uh, read, they're extinct. So don't let him scare you when he gets up here to talk. I'm going to ask him to say a few words to you uh, to prove that uh, they're still here. And the fact is, uh, there's a lot of them. I met a lot of them uh, living out in the California deserts where they were pushed, uh, uh, where the survivors are, and there's quite a lot of them. They're still surviving. Uh, the way they explained it to me, in conflict with those books and anthropologists, uh, that somebody uh, forgot to tell the women that they were extinct, so they quit, kept having babies. Coat. Oh. I'm the extinct one. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Kotlota. Uh, In my traditional language, that means uh, obsidian bow. I'm a Kobahi Shumish from uh, Central California, up around Santa Barbara. And there's about a thousand of us that are extinct up there in that area. <laughs> Earlier, you heard me say that uh, uh, people like uh, Rolling Thunder and other medicine men are very special to us. Well, they're, they're our eyes, they're our spiritual eyes, and uh, they can also be our disciplinary eyes, too. They take care of us. They're the ones who have the knowledge, and they're the ones who know how to show us to get where they're at. We need these people very, very, very badly. There's not enough of them to go around right now. And we take care of these people. Through the efforts of Rolling Thunder and uh, other medicine men in this country, us younger ones have brought ourselves up out of, uh, like he said, the non-Indian hell. We've gone through the drinking trip and the drugs and the disrespect to our parents, to our culture, and to ourselves. 
And respect is very important to an individual because if he doesn't have respect for himself, he can't expect respect from anybody else. And uh, these old ones have shown us where the respect lies and how to find respect, you know, in ourselves. So we've come a long ways. Uh, the Shumash of California, like Rolling Thunder said and a lot of other people, uh, they were declared extinct at one time. And it was kind of good for us because people left us alone. They didn't pry into our lives. So our culture, our language, our tradition, our customs, everything went underground, or some people called dormant. Well, we practice it every day, every day of our lives. Uh, whenever we go outside, that is part of our religion, you know, outside nature and maintaining the balance with Mother Nature and all our surroundings, as well as maintaining a balance with inside ourselves. But we are around, and we intend to stick around. Uh, last year, some of us extinct people got together, and we constructed a, what we call a tomoro, a Shumash plank boat, and we put to sea. It was the first time in 153 years that the Shumash have been to sea. Uh, the Coast Guard didn't like it. They wanted to put a uh, sticker on the boat and charge us taxes and all that stuff, but uh, they couldn't find a place to put a motor or sail on the boat. The boat itself was built in a traditional way. It's a, it is a boat, it's a true boat, the only true boat that was built in this country before uh, some of your ancestors sailed over here and in funny little things. And, uh, it's sewn together, there's no nails or anything put into it. There's 683 ties on the boat, and two ties to a knot, and a hell of a lot of blisters. Well, we put it together, and 10 of us put to sea. We took a nine-day trip, 109 miles, and uh, it was an experience. To see the pride and the dignity that was lost for a long time in a lot of our warriors and a lot of our women to see all this come rushing back and their chests swelled and their heads held high. And when we landed on the mainland, we were shumish once again and we had the pride and the dignity that had been gone. But we only got that back through the guidance of the old ones. Some people like to call them rowdy old men. Some live up to that reputation. But they're good people and they have good hearts and their own concern, the only concern is the welfare of the people. They you might say they're the hub of our civilization. Uh, we don't put them in old homes and let them die and rot away. We take them and we take care of them because they took care of us when they were able to. Their bodies might be old and their bodies might not be able to function for them anymore, but their mind is still vivid with a dream and the light, and that's the light that all of us need. And I don't think I want to say any more. Rolling Thunder had told me about Oscar Johnny. 
He's a traditional hereditary sub-chief of the Western Shoshone. Now there's a man who knows a lot. You might not recognize it right off, but he knows a lot. And if you were to ask him, he wouldn't tell you. Oscar Johnny spoke of Shoshone customs about food and clothing, marriages and wedding costumes. He talked of parents and grandparents and the stories the elders told. Many questions were asked. I had questions too, but I remembered Rolling Thunder saying, if you were to ask him, he wouldn't tell you, so I did not ask. A boy's grandparents usually find the wife for him. They make a buckskin outfit for him to wear at the wedding. They make it when he's a kid and put it away for the wedding day. They make it the right size to fit on the wedding day, and they put it away. How do they know the right size? They just know. They have to know, so they know. They know the wedding day, and they know the size. It has to be right, so they have to know. They know the girl, too, so they make her a dress, a wedding dress. It's a buckskin dress, a white buckskin dress, and it's the right size, too, and they put that away until the wedding day. You mean the grandparents always pick out the girl their grandson marries? Well, they find her, they find the right girl. What about the girl's grandparents? Do they agree? Sure they agree. They say, yes, that's the one. Do the girl's grandparents ever get to do the choosing? Well, it's the same thing. If they choose the right one, it's the same. How do they know which person is the right one for another to marry? Well, they just look into that, and they find the one that a person's going to marry. They find out in advance. That's the way they pick it. Why don't they let the person pick his own partner? Well, that's the one. That's the one he picks. That's what I meant by the right one. It's the one he picks. They just find her in advance. They have to find her because they have to make that buckskin dress. You mean they let the people find each other and decide to get married, but they know who they're going to be in advance? Do they know and just not tell them? Well, it don't make any difference. The young ones know, too, and then they ask. They ask their grandparents. You take some young buck. Say he goes somewhere, say Wyoming. He sees the girl, the one they already found, the one they made the dress for. He would have picked her himself. Or maybe he doesn't know yet. Maybe he feels something. So he goes to his grandparents next day and he says, Have I been spoken for? Do you know my woman? Do you know who she is? Have you made the dress? Of course they know, and they have made the dress. So then he asks, Who is she? But they don't say. And then he asks more questions. He asks if she lives in Wyoming, and he asks about her looks, and he finds out that way. How do they do that? Who knows? How about another cup of coffee? This is some pretty good coffee you've got up here. Nine lost on more, don't dust on more, hey, now. 
I've trained my thinking to when I look at someone, I can have a kind thought. I don't have any negative thought. And so I can see many times when a person is sick, what the sickness is. I don't, I have to carry my x-ray, or my machine portable in my head. And I can tell when a person feels bad or what that caused that sickness. And so it is too, that's what I'm interested in. That's my life. And that's my devotion to the Great Spirit and his work. So that's a religion, that's what we go by. And so it is too, that if anyone feels bad, we like to see them feel better because we're all brothers and sisters. We're created like the flowers. We don't look alike. That's some of their teachings and propaganda that we're all the same and all look alike and everything. Well, we know that's not true. And we're created like the flowers in different colors, even the little babies when they're born. And that we're also supposed to have a judgment, not to have to get all our information from newspapers or politicians or television or any other propaganda. Most of it nowadays just comes out wrong, what we call wrong teachings. That we, great creator, he gave us a brain. He wants us to learn to think for ourselves and stand on our own feet. And he wants us to use our brain or he wouldn't have gave it to us. Even a little baby lets you know right away what it likes and what it don't like. And you have a right to choose your own associations and surround yourself with friends and people that are like you relate to, understand, and they help you. That's part of the medicine. They help you to get well. If you surround yourself with bad people or people in negative ways of thinking, they're gonna help you downward. And you'll catch their Vibrations, as you call it. Uh, we say they're wrong thinking. And you become a part of it. And I can tell you this, you don't need any crutches. You don't need any booze. You don't need any uh, dope. You don't need anything to get high with. You could be high all the time and just knowing about the works of the Creator and that was it was in the beginning. And we don't either have to leave out the Father, Son, or the Grandmother Moon, or any of the works of nature and forget them. We don't have to engage in the destruction, uh, any of those things. And yet we could live in a modern civilization. And like the ancient peoples that we also know about, and it's written, we have writing. There's a Cherokee newspaper right today. And we have writing. They're all put away for the present time. 
and there's instructions how to create energy from the natural forces of those ancient people that knew how to take the energy of the sun and the wind, like we're going to be doing pretty soon. They knew how to take the energy of the sea and the gravity itself, and they knew how to move huge boulders. There were great civilizations here long before anyone else came here. And we know the histories that the anthropologists dig for in our graves, which is not necessary at all. Because uh, those ancient teachings are kept, and they're still alive, but they will not be brought out, and the people become more civilized and learn how to live together in peace. And we know at this time it'd be used for destructions and for war and profit of some few people. So that's the reason why they're not brought out. And there are people from other worlds, even. And they are watching very closely at this time the actions going on in this world. And they are very much interested that some fanatics don't blow up everything. And there'll be one more war, and that's all. And your people, your representatives up there anyway, they claim they are, in Washington, they'll have one more chance. They've had two, and they'll have one more to clean it up, and that's all. I was interested in, in something you said last night in the talk about how all the ancient traditional peoples that lived in what is now North America had one time had one language mm. and one culture. Mm. And yet I think many white people have an impression that there were many different Indian tribes and that these tribes didn't always get along and that they had very different uh, lifestyles. <clears throat> I see how it is that uh, white people have learned to believe their own propaganda. <laughs> and uh, that's what it is, mm -hmm. exactly. They came here very late in the scheme of things. Our future people are so ancient on this land that uh, our own legends and history tell us about the first people walking on this land when it still shake when you walk on it. The earth was soft. The pictographs, many of them, that they try to figure out how they put them in the rocks without stone implements. And the fact is, the way it was told to me, they used a stick or their fingers, that those were mud banks at that time. And so that's how ancient our people are. They're not one, uh, the, tribe, the lost tribes of Israel, they're not one of the uh, peoples who walk, came, walked across the Bering Strait. They originated on this land while the earth was still warm. And that same way people also originated four other places, the different races on the earth. Now, I seen that in a scientific magazine a while back, the same theory they're coming to that the Indians and the ancient peoples uh, knew about it in the beginning all the time. So as you get more scientific, it also uh, find that we've been here a few thousand years longer, which we knew all the time, but they didn't ask us. And uh, so far as the tribes getting along, a <coughs> uh, 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 man, uh, well, I guess uh, won't hurt to refer to him as a gentleman. Uh, at the time, he made me very angry, though, 
because he didn't talk like a gentleman. When he, uh, he's an anthropologist, and uh, when he made that particular statement that they did different tribes fought among themselves. Now, for a white person or an Anglo to say that, after the wars of genocide, they had and have all the time. It's quite idiotic. It's quite immature. Now, I'm not referring to you in this uh, instance either. You only were repeating, you know, the history of what's been said, what others say. But when some person themselves, and supposed to be an educated person and an anthropologist, and claim they know a lot of the answers, to show their complete ignorance uh, of, of uh, the facts. And, and for a white man to say it makes it worse, much worse. To show a complete ignorance, and that's all it could be called when they make a statement like that. And the thing is, that what they don't know about the Indian, that could fill, uh, that could fill libraries. What little they do know, they could, uh, actually know, they could condense it in one small book. Because they got the information in the wrong places, what they didn't conjure up, and uh, their own lies believe it. So that it was like this. There were some raids, I guess they would call wars, sometimes uh, maybe six or eight people at the most. Uh, not wars of genocide, with millions involved in over long periods of times, and uh, as uh, like uh, Creeks and the Cherokees were a long time ago going to go to war over a little valley. Uh, who was going to own it, or who was going to use it as a hunting ground? That's what it was over. So they decided to have a lacrosse game. That's an Indian ball game. It's a very rough game to decide who would use that valley. Uh, whoever the winner would be. And, uh, well, the anthropologists have found the artifacts of the Creeks and arrowheads, and the artifacts and arrowheads of the Cherokee, both in that valley. And they're still trying to figure it out now who owned that valley. Well, the fact is, they decided, it was, the Indians decided it was so much fun, they'd have the game every year, and the winner would use the valley. And so it passed back and forth, and as time went on, you know. So, so these uh, nuts go in there, these crazy people go in there, and they find the artifacts of both tribes, and they're still trying to waste time now trying to figure it out. And all they forgot to do was ask the Indians. And so they're getting smarter all the time, though, as they dig deeper in their graves. Kind of a gruesome thing, but as they dig deeper in their graves, you know, and as they've been here a little longer, and uh, someday we might tell them when they get intelligence enough where they can digest it and not misinterpret the facts. But uh, the one thing that does irritate me is to hear <coughs> any, uh, I won't call him a white man because it's an insult to the white race. I know a lot of good white people, any Caucasian I should say, make an ignorant statement after what they've been doing themselves, and many of them engaged in it, that the Indians fought among themselves. When they don't know, they might have been here all their life, or born here. And there's many people like that, that were born in this country, and don't know one thing about the American people, the Native American people. <laughs>
don't know one thing. And so they've educated themselves to ignorance. I found that over in Europe, there were many people who were more enlightened. I knew more, uh, had more respect for the native people from here than there is shown in this country today. So uh, I didn't mean to get carried away, but I just uh, don't have patience for ignorance or Nazi uh, ideas. <laughs> well, <laughs> having uh, studied anthropology for 10 years myself, then having two degrees in anthropology, I agree with sorry. I agree with you. <laughs> I wasted. I wasted. Well, I'm glad you do. Uh, I wasted there, a lot of time. There we go again. It shows me that there's some anthropologists that uh, are not uh, 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 not crazy. I am no longer an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> I reformed. <laughs> uh, that that shows us woke for all people. <laughs> Since the Council Grove lecture, I had heard Rolling Thunder speak many times about what he called the kidnapping of Indian children. For generations, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and other agencies and members of the Mormon Church and other Christian sects have been breaking up American Indian families. Under its, quotes, educational system, the Bureau of Indian Affairs purposely assigned Indian children to boarding schools too far from home to maintain meaningful family communication and forbade them to use their native languages and customs. Christians have looked upon the Indians as heathens and have used forced adoptions as a means to get Indian children into Christian homes. Mormons consider Indians a chosen people of Israel and take it upon themselves to arrange for their, quotes, salvation. For most Indians, salvation means tragedy. 
Welfare agencies are commonly used by other groups and individuals as a convenient instrument to carry out such unilateral adoption proceedings. Often without warning, the county sheriff or deputy appears on the reservation to take frightened children from their shocked and protesting families. Whether the purpose is to re-educate or acculturate the children, to anglicize, modernize, or Christianize them, the forcible separation of American Indian children from their parents is kidnapping or child-stealing and would be judged a crime if committed against a less helpless people. Now they say, like they want us to set a date and a time. They want us to set a date for California going to water, like some people invited us down here. You never heard no American Indian put that out. We knew it wasn't going to happen. They didn't ask us. They asked somebody who don't know anything about it. Might have come from different land. And they don't know the law of this land. I assure you they don't. But we do. And they never ask us. They only ask us how to get away when that time comes. I'm talking now about some wealthy people right here in Los Angeles. One time paid my way down here. And I didn't know what I was getting trapped into that time. And they drove up in their Cadillacs, and they had a barn house, a mansion of a house. And uh, they want me to tell them how to get away when Los Angeles in this country is going to go in the water. Well, why would the Great Spirit want to set a date and time for somebody to get away when they didn't have it coming? So that uh, certain things, too much knowledge might not be good for some people at this time. But the only unfortunate thing is when some people suffer, and there's also some of the good ones that also suffer, like the heritage handed down to you. For whatever happened way back there, and now it's happening to you. It don't make us Indians happy at that situation exist and going to be more so. It'll be not just New York City, I've seen it, where it's unsafe to walk the streets. It won't be just New York City, where you have to borrow your homes, like I've seen it up there. We found good people living up there in the middle of New York, with six and seven locks on the door, a guard in the hallway, other apartments. And when they step outside, Especially the women, they had sometimes one, sometimes two guard dogs with them. Now that's conditions certainly didn't come from any of our teachers. And we're not responsible for it, but it still don't make us happy. It came from the greed. It came from the selfishness and the wrong teachings that were brought here and that we suffered under for many, many years. Now that condition is being ended, and very fast. But there'll be much destruction. There'll be many things that are not pleasant to talk about, but are facts. And there'll be no date and no time set for anybody to get away. But there'll be many survivors. And we know out there in the middle of the desert, there'll be some who'll make their way up across the deserts to our country. Because the only safe areas is gonna be where traditional Indians still live. So 
So you need us, and we need you. All people are needed. All people, I mean, who uh, believe in the great spirit's way of life and understand that. that. All people need each other. And at that time, we know how to purify the air and the earth. That was given back to us. It was lost for a long time. It was said before that time happened that this knowledge would be returned to us, that they'd poison the earth and the air for as much as 40 years. And that uh, we know it's getting very close by the signs. But we aren't going to set a date and a time, and anybody else that tries it, they're going to be wrong. And the reason we knew California wasn't going under the water that time, one of the reasons, I was sitting in a meeting out on an Indian reservation up there with a bunch of old men, and they were talking, dreams, prophecies, different things like we do, sometimes all night long. And we exchange the information, and then we have a pretty good picture of what's going on and uh, what we call the other world, your world. Better than even reading a newspaper. A lot of them don't talk English, and yet they have a better knowledge of what's really going on. You might be surprised. And they have an intelligence far superior to some of us might have been brainwashed or sent off to school. I learned a long time ago to listen and not to interrupt them when they're talking. And you'll see the young men who are going to be medicine men sitting way back somewhere and never miss a word, but never do they interrupt. They're learning, and we know which ones are going to grow up to be medicine men. You can tell. And uh, by the way, they're understanding this. And so I was sitting in this meeting out on the reservation, and one old Indian spoke up, and he said, I seen that place called San Francisco. I'd been bragging on San Francisco. That's one of my favorite cities. Uh, all kind of people there you can talk to, any kind of food you want to eat, you know, different kind each meal or each day. Makes it very interesting. So I'd been bragging on San Francisco. Sometimes I brag on Los Angeles, too, uh, by the way. But uh, this time I'd been talking about San Francisco and California generally. We like California, we like San Francisco. I do, too. Anyway, this old man spoke up and said, I've seen that place called San Francisco. He had never been off the reservation. And he said, I've seen it with water most of the way around, like an like a island. We have no word for peninsula, Indian language. He said, I've seen it like an island, with one little stem holding it up. So we knew then it wasn't going to happen. But I wasn't satisfied. I had to go back down San Francisco. And I was sitting in the park having a smoke. One of my own tribe walked up to me, a man from my own tribe. He's grumbling about he got chased out of the park up there fishing. Couldn't even fish for his own food no more. They chased him out of the park. He was fishing in the park. And uh, so uh, he wanted me to go home with him. He was staying with some people there. 
Moose people are supposed to be extinct. The native Indians, I mean, that inhabited San Francisco. So I went home with him, to people, uh, met the people he was staying with, and there were a family of the native people from San Francisco. Some of the survivors live right in the middle of San Francisco. But I can tell you this, not far from Los Angeles, there's a peak close to Altadena. I've been up there with some of the native people from here for ceremonies. And there were houses built on the side of that mountain where they didn't belong. They didn't fit. They didn't belong there. That's a sacred mountain. And those houses, they had a big mudslide right after that and it slid to the bottom. Big boulders rolled down the canyon below and knocked them down. Sometimes the earth has to be cleansed. Then you have a storm. I think you had one here a while back. And the wind blew terrific. Uh, some people called up home and asked me. They tried to blame it on me. <laughs> and I can tell you, uh, I didn't do that. Uh, and uh, so I can't, I don't uh, want to take the responsibility of something I'm not responsible for, but there were some bad things going on down here. Somewhere, that's for sure. settlement that's out in Carlin. Can we introduce who you are? Oh. Then? Dr. Dick Hill, Dick Hill, clinical psychologist and, uh, and founder of the Topanga Center. I like to think I'm not only a friend of RT's, but part of his family. I know that uh, if he hasn't adopted me, I've adopted him. <laughs> uh, we read the book written by Doug Boyd, and uh, it was my first experience. I read a lot of books. But it was the first time that I ever heard the words of a man that uh, fit with what was on in my heart, what felt good to me. So we decided that we had to meet this man. And we went up to Carlin. And uh, we happened to get there just at a time when some very bad things had happened up there. Rolling Thunder has a house 
in town, in some property in town on the edge of Carlin. And at that time he had quite a few people living there and they were already starting the beginnings of Meditante. They had some animals, they had some pigs and some goats and some rabbits and chickens. And they had just built a new willow woven fence, which was beautiful to see. I'd never seen a woven willow fence before. It was about, oh, five or six feet tall. And those willows were so tight that a, 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 a mouse couldn't have gotten through there. It was really something. It was like a big standing basket all around the back end. But some of the people in the area had uh, been jealous of Rolling Thunder and his people for some time, and they started a fire and tried to burn part of the place down. And he gave him a chance to get on the property. And he told me that uh, when they got on the property, they saw all these animals, and they said that that was against the, the code, you know, the white man's code, and said that he had to have his animals off the property in 10 days or they'd come on the property and kill him. Well, that upset me, and I didn't know what I could do, but I have a lot of good friends, and I kicked the dirt out there in the backyard with him for a little while, and I said, well, I'll see what I can do, and I came back to Los Angeles, and some of my friends and I were able to get some help together because he told me that he had some land that he really wanted to get out on the edge of Carlin, about 280 acres. And uh, thanks to my friends, why we were able to get some money that he needed to, to get started with that. We came back up there in about five days' time, I think it was, and had enough money to move. And um, I've never seen anything like that. They must have had about, oh, nine or ten men at that time, uh, strong men. And in three days' time, with nothing but shovels and hand axes and adds and hoes. They had a road, must have run a quarter of a mile off the main paved road, back into the corner of the desert, through the sagebrush, through the mesquite. They had that made out there. They had uh, corrals made out of railroad ties. They had uh, rabbit pens. They had chicken coops. They had uh, pens for the goats for the ducks, and they had them all moved out there. And uh, I used to be a preacher years ago. It took the Lord six days, you know, to create the earth. But I'll tell you, Meditante and his men got that job done in three, and it was something to see. <laughs> and that was something else, too, you know. We talk about work down here in the city. We don't know what work is. In, in the city, if we saw these people, we'd think they were slaves or something. But they're singing, they're happy. Um, they love each other, and they care about each other, and as R.T. says, they respect each other. And it's, um, well, I got goosebumps just thinking about it, because it's beautiful to see. The one thing people have asked me about as far as Rolling Thunder's concerned and as far as the Meditante is concerned, um, they say, you know, what is, the, what, is, what, is, what is it about? And I say, always say, the one thing it is about is respect. They respect each other, they respect the land, they respect all of nature, and therefore they respect themselves. And you can see it. You go up there and you can feel it. They care about each other. And you feel cared for when you're there, you know? It's just, it's just a beautiful place, you know? Uh, 
Not fancy, but it's beautiful. What does meditante mean? Oh, I should ask Rolling Thunder that. It means to go in peace. And this peaceful place. I don't know, as a white man in that community, I never felt like a stranger. And I uh, always felt like I was welcome. And, uh, you know, they don't even, they don't, they don't allow any violence up there. I was, I was, I was even amazed. They don't even speak harshly to their, to their dogs or the cats, you know. I mean, they don't have any violence. And those dogs and cats and the birds and everything else, they seem to know what they want. Uh, both years that I've been up there, uh, they've always had a crow, a Mr. High, and uh, been two different crows as far as I know. Now, they didn't go out and trap those crows. The crows just came around and they come down for feed and they sit there and they talk to the people and they come in and beg a little bit, but you know, it's respect again. It's just Rolling Thunder, Part 5, Fight for Life, the fifth of an eight-part program on the Shoshone medicine man, healer, and activist. The book, Rolling Thunder, by Doug Boyd, was read by Mitchell Harding. Music by the Cheyenne Dave Group with T. Nightwalker, D. Osage, and the White Skunk Sisters, Patsy Casador, C. Hoffman and the San Carlos Apaches, Morris Medicine and Pamela Medicine, and Buffy St. Marie. Technical and production assistance by Margaret Fowler, Mitchell Harding, and Amanda Folger. This program was produced by Roy E. Tuckman for Pacifica Radio, KPFK, Los Angeles.